0: Good evening, and welcome to the Dreary Midnight Podcast. My name is Lisa, my pronouns are she, they, and in honor of the most wonderful time of the year, we are discussing witchcraft trials. Now, we're not going to talk about Salem today. We'll get there eventually, but not this year. Salem, Massachusetts was not the only place in the colonies that persecuted people for witchcraft. Today, we're talking about a few cases from Virginia and some of the background on the laws that led to women getting tried for witchcraft in the first place. I grew up in Virginia and I've never heard of these. Before we get into it though, it is time for our very first Patreon shout out. Thank you to uh, Brian for joining on the Telltale Hearts tier. If you would also like to join the Patreon and get a shout out at the top of the show, go to patreon.com DrearyMidnight, or follow the link in the description. So With all that said, let's get into it. Witchcraft was not always thought to be malicious. Historically, witches are just people with a bit of extra knowledge on a specific subject. The cunning folk, as they were called, probably just knew more about herbs and sometimes more about healing than the average person. Perhaps someone else taught them, maybe they just learned things through trial and error. Even things like folk magic were just a regular part of life. Sometimes the folk magic was helpful, sometimes it was harmful. It was probably just a net neutral, all told. Then everything changed when the Catholic Church took over in the 14th century. The Catholics started the shift from witchcraft as a thing some people did, just for help or harm, to just something done for harm. If a practice was not part of Catholic doctrine, it was automatically deemed to be witchcraft and therefore automatically associated with the devil. But this meant there was a shift in philosophy as well. Instead of a bad harvest being an awful thing that happens sometimes, witchcraft was the reason that the crops failed. Similar attributions were made to witchcrafts about bad storms and famines. It couldn't just be awful weather events, it had to be witches. This philosophy was around for a lot of English history, but it came into the courts in the 1500s. Henry VIII passed the Witchcraft Acts in 1542, which made witchcraft a felony punishable by death and forfeitures of goods and chattels. It outlawed the use, device, practice, or exercise, or cause to be device, practice, or exercise any invocations or conjurations of sprites, witchcraft, enchantments, or sorceries to the intent to find money or treasure, or to waste, consume, or destroy any person in his body members, or to provoke any person to all unlawful love, or for any other unlawful intent or purpose." Since it's from 1542 and early modern English, there are quite a number of extra E's and U's in that passage than modern English would usually attribute. King Henry's law was repealed five years later, but in 1562, Queen Elizabeth I passed an act against conjurations, enchantments, and witchcrafts. The law made witchcraft a felony again, but conviction only resulted in death when harm could be proven. Fortune-telling and seeking lost treasure were now only misdemeanors, but it included the use of seditious words and rumors and linked witchcraft to wax figures, creating royal nativities and divining the length of royal reigns. In uh, Queen Elizabeth's ongoing feud against the Catholics, the first two were direct jabs at the Catholics. Things really got bad 20 years later with King James. In 1589, King James VI of Scotland was set to marry the woman who would become Queen Anne. Her boat, traveling from Denmark, was caught in a bad storm and was stranded. After lots of trials and lots of rumors, and James decided the devil was out to get him and was doing so through the use of Danish witches. This prompted a passion for studying witchcraft. And King James published Demonology in 1597. In 1604, after his coronation, he passed the Witchcraft Act. And this was the framework around which the initial colonists of Virginia viewed witchcraft. And well, this whole concept sounded a little familiar. Macbeth was first staged in 1603, around the time of James's coronation in England and also the time of Shakespeare's company becoming the King's Men, officially sponsored by King James. Listen, I'm not saying it was shade, but well, I'm just saying the jester is the only one who can really speak truth to power still in king james's law, witchcraft was separated into two degrees witchcraft in the first degree meant causing death or destruction through conjuration of an evil spirit or the use of charms and sorcery first degree witchcraft was punishable by death by hanging second degree witchcraft was also called petite witchcraft this is Things like finding buried treasure, locating stolen goods, using potions or charms to provoke unlawful love. Not entirely sure what unlawful love means in this context. The first offense of petite witchcraft was a year in prison. The punishment for the second offense was also death. This is the framework through which a lot of colonists viewed witchcraft, both philosophically and legally. Philosophically, a lot of witch trial framework is based on the premise of, if it's not Christian, it's satanic and therefore witchcraft. So for example, the indigenous tribes in the Chesapeake Bay area could not possibly be practicing their own religion and rituals in peace. They had to be worshiping Satan and practicing witchcraft. Obviously the rituals of the Powhatan Confederacy were not the rituals practiced by Catholics. The deities worshiped were not Christian deities. The tribes had their own local religions and worshiped their own gods. But since those gods were not the Christian gods, they were witches, and therefore agents of Satan. In 1612, for example, Reverend Alexander Whittaker wrote a sermon published in Good News from Virginia. said of the local religious practices, their priests are no other but such as our English witches are. They live naked in body as if their shame of their sin deserved no covering. I mean, I know intellectually that the field of anthropology was not really invented yet, but damn. That is some cultural disrespect. Basically all of the rituals of indigenous tribes were considered witchcrafts because, again, they're not Christian rituals, etc, etc. Of course, some research has been done on Salem. It's the most famous series of witch trials in the colonies. But there's tons of history of witchcraft trials in Europe, especially in England and Scotland. Salem looms large in American history because it was such a large scale set of trials. More often, witch trials in the colonies are against one specific person that several other people do not like. Unlike in Salem, there are rarely more than a few people in a given town, in a given generation, that were accused of witchcraft. Over the course of English colonization in Virginia in the 17th century, there were several suits and countersuits and investigations into witchcraft. There weren't a ton of witch trials in the colonies during the English Civil War, but there were a lot of witch trials in England. Something about cultural unrest might do that. According to a book called Witchcraft in Colonial Virginia, the first recorded witchcraft inquiry in Virginia dates to 1626. That first inquiry was into Joan Wright, a midwife. Her husband, Robert, was a sawyer, someone who saws timber for a living. They both moved from England to Virginia by 1609, and they were married by 1610. By 1625, Robert had accrued a number of debts, and creditors were coming after him. Meanwhile, Joan was known as a cunning woman, and apparently was a clairvoyant. She seemed to be kind of an unpleasant person, or at least wasn't as happy-go-lucky as her neighbors might have wanted. In 1626, they moved to Paces Paynes across the James River from Jamestown and into what would become Surrey County. But Paces Pains is where they would be accused of witchcraft. At the time, witchcraft had to be tried in Jamestown before the general court, so back to Jamestown they went. The first witness was Lieutenant Giles Allington, who said Joan had caused him harm and sickness. If this were found to be witchcraft, again, that would be considered a felony, since it would be considered witchcraft in the first degree. Allington also said, he heard from Sergeant Booth, that Sergeant Booth was crossed by a woman. For a year after this crossing, every time Sergeant Booth went hunting, he allegedly could not hit anything. But Allington could not confirm that Sergeant Booth had crossed Joan in particular. And this, my friends, is what we call hearsay. But why not bring it up in case it was Joan? According to his testimony, Allington also asked Joan to be the midwife when his child was born. Joan was left-handed, and so Mrs. Allington did not want someone so sinister at such a critical period. They wound up using Mrs. Grave as their midwife, but the switch still apparently angered Joan. Mrs. Allington had a recovery of four to five weeks, after which Lieutenant Allington was sick for three weeks. Their child was sick for months and died by six months of age. This is a witchcraft trial, so of course they want to prove Joan had something to do with all of the health complications, even though she was not present at the birth. The left-handedness accusation was probably a sincerely held belief. Plenty of European cultures held that the right was the correct side and the left was the sinister or devil-related one. The Latin word for left is literally the origin for the word sinister. And well, if a parent truly believes their left-handed midwife has sinister intentions, that may stress the parent out extra during labor, which in turn would probably be bad for the health of both the child and the parents. This is the only one where I can kind of see why a mourning parent may look for someone else to blame and may have a cause for it. If Joan's attitude and left-handedness had not stressed out Mrs. Ellington, maybe the birth would have gone better. But still, maybe Joan is stressed. Her husband is in a mountain of debt. Maybe the family needed the money for her being a midwife in order to start paying that off. And if she doesn't get the job, then that's really frustrating. But that was not the only accusation against Joan. Rebecca Gray said that Joan predicted Rebecca would soon bury her husband. Daniel Watkins said Joan predicted the death of Robert Thresher's chickens. Robert Thresher said Joan asked him if she could have some plants. The next day, his plants were drowned. Robert had not said, no, you cannot have any plants. He had said, let me get my own plants in order, and if I have any extra, you can have them. And still the plants were drowned. Elizabeth Gates said Joan wanted to buy some chickens from Mr. Moores in Kickatan. Mr. Moores said no. Then the chickens all died. Isabel Perry said that she heard Joan yelling at Goodwife Gates' daughter for stealing a log of light wood. Isabel also said that Dorothy Bethlehem said that Joan had been a witch at Hull in England before Joan had moved to the colonies 15 years earlier. All in all, it seemed like Joan had an abrasive personality and did not mind being called a witch. She was found guilty of the lower tiers of witchcraft and fined 100 pounds of tobacco. What you might notice is that even though Joan was tried 70 years before the Salem witch trials, Joan was not put to death. In 1627, a year after the witch trials, Robert petitioned the general court to get a plot of land on Jamestown Island. The petition was granted, and the family moved to the plot of land called Labor in Vain. Robert was eventually imprisoned as As a debtor in 1628, but there's no word of what happened to Joan after her witchcraft accusations. Now, most of the victims of witch trials were female. Hardly a surprise there. According to witchcraft in colonial Virginia, 80% of suspected witches and 85% of executed witches were female. That is, as suspected, because of Catholicism. According to the Puritan preacher William Perkins, the woman is a weaker sex and, quote, "...is sooner entangled by the devil's illusions with the damnable art than the man. And in all ages it is found true by experience that the devil hath more easily and oftener prevailed with women than with men." Basically, because Satan easily tempted Eve first, that automatically meant that all women were more susceptible to the temptations away from the church. But as the 17th century wore on, the witchcraft trials started to slow down, at least in the colonies. There weren't many trials in the colonies during the English Civil War. There were a lot of witch trials in England during the English Civil War. After the war, they picked up again in the colonies for the last half of the 17th century. The most notable, obviously, was Salem in 1692 and 93, but back to Virginia. Virginia had few witch trials by the time the Salem trials happened, and there was only one in Virginia after after the turn of the 18th century. And that is the trial of Grace Sherwood, who also wound up being convicted, but not being put to death. Grace Sherwood was brought to trial on witchcraft charges in Princess Anne County, Virginia, in 1705 and 1706. These were not Grace's first brushes with the law or with witchcraft accusations. By 1705, Grace had been in and out of court for the better part of a decade. See, Richard Capps began talking about how Grace was a witch back in 1697. He did not formally make accusations in court, but Grace and her husband James still took him to court for defamation in February of 1697 or 1698. Somehow they all worked it out among them and the suit was dismissed a month later. Then, six months after that, John Gisborne and his wife were saying that Grace had, quote, bewitched their pigs to death and bewitched their cotton, end quote. Another woman, Elizabeth Barnes, accused Grace of coming to her one night without waking up Anthony Barnes, her husband. According to Elizabeth, Grace entered the room and then left through the keyhole looking like a black cat. Some Grace and James Sherwood bring the, both the Gisborne's and the Barneses to court for slander. Again, they bring nine witnesses. They still lose, and they are not awarded any damages. Furthermore, they have to pay court costs, including the transportation and housing for their nine witnesses and the four days of the trial. Not long after James died, in 1701, he died without a will. Grace is allowed to administer his estate, but by 1705, she's gotten into the bad graces of her neighbors. In December of 1705, Grace got into a physical fight with Elizabeth Hill. And back to court they go, this time Grace accusing Elizabeth of assault and battery and asking for 50 pounds sterling in damages. Elizabeth pleads not guilty, and Grace is awarded 20 shillings. One pound sterling. She was asking for 50. But the Hill family is not done yet. Elizabeth and Luke Hill accuse Grace of witchcraft. As a note on the timeline here, the trial for assault and battery is December 1705. By February of 1706, they're in court with the accusations of witchcraft. At a hearing in March of 1706, the court ordered that Grace's body must be examined by a jury of women. These women would be looking for witches' marks. If Grace was a witch, she would have received a black mark from the devil himself when she forsook her baptism. That mark would have been something innocuous. Maybe a scar, maybe a birthmark, maybe a mole and located in a hard-to-reach spot, like an armpit or one's privates. According to court records, Grace was inspected by a jury of women for any such spot. The jury found two things like teats with several other spots. That was a direct quote. But at least for this trial, there was not anything specific enough upon which to try Grace as a witch. Unlike with Joan, there weren't many accusers saying, she's responsible for my illness, she killed my chickens, and so on. Still, there was some reasonable suspicion from those marks, so the jury moved to search Grace's home to see if there was anything that might bolster the accusation. Not sure if they actually found anything. Eventually, Grace was brought to a pond for a type of trial called witch ducking, which is the type of water test to determine if someone was a witch. The accused would be bound hand to foot and would be put in a body of water deeper than someone could reasonably stand. If the accused was guilty of witchcraft, they would afloat. If they were innocent, they would sink. Sure, they might die if they sink, but their soul would be able to go to the good place, so it all worked out. See, in England, there was a thought that if someone was a witch, their contract with the devil meant they would repel water. Water was representative of baptism, and thus forgiveness of sins. Becoming a witch meant forsaking one's baptism, so it's all out the window. This isn't only an English thing, the association between water and purity in some capacity. Witchcraft tests often involved water, and were more common in the Westphalia region of Germany, dating back to the mid-16th century in Europe, but they weren't officially codified in England until King James. Sometimes, if it's sort of a mob mentality, one a witch might be Uh, witch ducked, but it wasn't an official test until King James. But water tests for witchcraft date back to the Code of Hammurabi, well before the advent of Christianity and therefore baptism. So, what happened to Grace? On July 10th, 1706, she was brought to what is now called Witch Duck Point and stripped down to her shift. Several men rode out to where the water was deep enough for the test. They were mostly there to be rowers, but also to be there to prevent her from drowning. Grace's hands were bound to her feet, and she was sent over the edge of the boat. And she floated. Now, if this were a decade earlier in Salem, Grace would immediately be put to death. But this was not Salem in 1692. This was Virginia in 1706. So Grace was brought to shore, still presumably wearing her wet shift and literally nothing else in front of a gathered crowd grace was later inspected by five ancient women that was the description from the transcript and she was found to have two witches' marks darker than the rest of her skin and was declared quote not to be like any of them end quote them meaning regular women i guess But there was not any record of any proper conviction. She was kept in jail for at least a year, but that was more to await conviction and punishment than anything else. I did not find a record of what that conviction and punishment wound up being. They may have had to appeal all the way up to Williamsburg, where the colony's governor was, but a lot of the local records were destroyed around the Civil War, so we just don't know. She was definitely not put to death in 1706, though, or 1707, or at all. She lived for more than 30 years after. Unlike her husband, she died with a will, leaving all of her property to her three sons. And she did have property. In 1714, she received a grant of 145 acres of land, which had all belonged to her father. Not too bad, economically speaking. Her will was entered into probate in October of 1740, 34 years after her witch trial. She died at the age of 80. So after Grace Sherwood, there were not many legal records of witchcraft in Virginia. That does not mean they vanished entirely, it just means it was no longer a legal issue. The acts that King James passed were repealed in 1736 and replaced with the Acts of 1736. That mostly just removed witchcraft as a felony, but kept the punishments as a misdemeanor and a year in prison. The Acts of 1736 remained on the books until 1951, the longest-running witchcraft legislation discussed so far. That does not mean that the philosophy left entirely. In a book called Virginia Folk Legends, edited by Thomas Barden, it was released in 1991, but as a transcription of interviews in the 1930s and 40s. In a previous episode, I think I accidentally said that these were stories from the 1910s and 20s. That was incorrect. See, these were all interviews done during the Virginia Writers Project during the WPA era, or the Works Progress Administration. That was in effect during the Great Depression and into the Second World War as a way to create more jobs and also to create infrastructure and record culture. The VWP workers conducted interviews about legends and local stories, especially in the Appalachia region of Virginia, in the western part of the state, and sent weekly write-ups of the stories collected. It went from mid-1937 to mid-1942. And these stories, 200 years after Grace Sherwood's death, are where the more modern stories of witchcraft reside. See, these were the stories told before there were podcasts or audiobooks or things one could listen to on a long car ride or hanging on the porch on a summer evening. Instead of listening to me, a 20-something on the other side of the state, the residents of Appalachia would be listening to your grandparents talk about, what, well, whatever Grandpa was talking about. See, these sorts of stories aren't necessarily about a widespread social panic. They may not even be about screw this one person in particular. But they have developed into cultural warnings about all sorts of things. Be wary of strangers asking strange things. Don't go into the woods with fewer than three people. Take a buddy or three while hunting. Be aware. Sometimes, like the witches of centuries prior, the person doing the witchcraft was just trying to establish themselves and their reputation in the community. They could be just trying to survive to get food and shelter and so on. And so we'll leave you with two stories from Virginia folk legends. Both of these originate in Wise County, one of the three counties at the western tail of Virginia. Part of Wise County, I think, is farther west than some parts of West Virginia. But the first story is called Devil Bill Boggs. It was told to Emery L. Hamilton by Preston Cornett in Esserville in Wise County, November 18th, 1940. I guess you've heard of Old Devil Bill Boggs that used to live on the Roaring Fork. Well, he was always counted a witch. Him and Old Andy Sturgill used to hunt together all the time. One time, they's out deer hunting, and Old Man Andy got so he couldn't kill a deer. He'd shoot at one close range and right broadsided and couldn't hit it. He finally told Old Devil Bill that he was going home because he couldn't hit anything he shot at. Old Devil Bill begged him not to go in. He said, you'll kill something directly he said no, he was going in. Devil Bill told him if he would stay he'd guarantee he killed something before the hunt was over, if he would let him load his gun. Well old Andy agreed to stay and handed Devil Bill his rifle for him to load. I don't know what he loaded it with, some kind of load he took from his pocket. Well, they hunted along for a spell on the hillside. He told Andy to shoot at a big buck they spied way over the top of another ridge. Old man Andy fired and sure enough the buck toppled over. Of course, the gun was spelled, and when Devil Bill loaded it, he took the spell off of it. They say Devil Bill told Andy that someday he was going to run a deer plum over him. Old Andy thought he was just talking. One day, though, they was out, and Andy went up one ridge, and Devil Bill up another ridge, and, as they always did, when hunting. After a piece up the hill, old man Andy sits down on a log to rest. Thought Devil Bill was on the other ridge. Directly, something came crashing through the brush and a deer leaped right slap over him. When he saw it coming, he didn't have time to get up, but he raised his rifle up and shot the deer in the belly just as it leaped over him. Ha ha, you're a better soldier than I thought you were. And you looked up, and not ten feet above him, sit old Devil Bill on a log. See, Devil Bill carries on the tradition of both clairvoyance and witchcraft being associated with the devil. They call him devil bill for a reason the interesting thing at this point though is that well by the turn of the 20th century being a witch was a gender neutral term taking someone to court for witchcraft was not necessarily done in the turn of the 20th century sometimes one had to take matters into one's own hands besides this is the middle of the mountains in virginia wise county borders west virginia and is geographically closer to the capitals of kentucky tennessee and north carolina than it is to the state capital of richmond Sometimes one just has to do things by oneself. For example, the last story, called Cooking a Witch's Shoulder, it was from James Taylor Adams from his own recollection in Big Laurel, Wise County, on March 27, 1939. My mother told me this one when I was a child. I've heard it since in slightly different versions. It was a long time ago when people first came from east virginia and western north carolina and settled here in the cumberlands a settler whose name has been forgotten had a large flock of sheep suddenly his sheep began to die one a day seemingly from no particular cause he watched his flock and would see a ram or ewe suddenly fall dead while it was feeding along in the best of health he believed his sheep were bewitched so he hired himself an old woman t- who was reputed to be a witch doctor She told him to go home and skin up the ham or shoulder of a sheep that had just died and put it in an oven and bake it and by no means allow anyone to come in the house and borrow, steal, or in any way get anything out of the house above all a drink of water. So he skinned a sheep that had died that same day and put a shoulder on in the oven to bake. The witch doctor had said to let it warm up slowly and start baking gradually for best results. He followed the directions, and it was two hours before the shoulder was warmed up to the baking stage. About that time, he looked down the road and saw a neighbor woman coming, walking as if she was in a hurry. She came on, entered, and asked to borrow some meal. They had no meal. She then asked for a drink of water, and there was no water up from the well. She took her departure, but in a short time she was again seen approaching, walking faster than before. This time, she seemed unstrung and could not stand still and wanted to borrow some salt. There was no salt in the house, and again she asked for water, which was politely but firmly refused to her. All the time, she was eyeing the oven in the hearth, and this time, before she left, she asked what they were baking and tried accidentally to overturn the oven. She had not been gone long until she was seen coming again. This time, she was running. The shoulder was getting nice brown now. She rushed into the house and screamed, for God's sake, get that off of there. You're killing me, look here. And she ripped off her clothes and exposed her own shoulder, baked to the same crisp brown as the mutton shoulder. The woman recovered, but if she ever practiced her witchery again, it was not found out. This one is interesting in that you don't take someone to court for being a witch. There are several other tales with similar things. The commonality in Among those tales is put some lamb in the oven or something, something, use lamb, something, something. But by the 20th century, the philosophy about witchcraft was the same, but different. According to James Taylor Adams, who recalled the Cooking the Witch's Shoulder story, he gave a quote about context for Appalachian witch tales in the 1930s. Quote, My grandfather, Spencer Adams, believed in witches. One of my uncles, William Green Adams, still living at the age of 87, believes in witchcraft. And I have heard it said that he once declared he could overcome a witch's charm. In other words, that he was a witch doctor. I am not sure, but I am of the opinion that my father, Joseph Adams, he died when I was eight years old, believed that people and things could be bewitched by persons who had gotten the unusual power by selling their souls to the devil. I can remember hearing my father and mother discuss such things as as they sat around the fire on winter evenings. And somehow I got the impression that they believed there were witches, bewitched things, and witch doctors. And of course I believed in witches just the same as I did in A Personal God, until I got old enough to know better. Belief in witchcraft, once general in the Cumberlands, is now found only in the most isolated sections and among the older people. I believe it would be a safe estimate to say that 50% of the people above 70 years old still believe in witches. They have the Bible to back them up in their belief, so why not? And, well, that's the philosophy and the legality of witch trials in Virginia. But that's all I have for you for tonight. If you enjoy the show, rate, review, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, send me an email, drearymidnightpodcast at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram, at drearymidnightpod. If you would like to support the show, to get shoutouts, bonus episodes, postcard club, and more, patreon.com slash drearymidnight. And go ahead and check out the website, drearymidnightpod.wordpress.com. As always, links and references are in the description of this episode. With that, keep an eye out for witchcraft, travel with several friends, unless one of those friends' name is Devil Bill, and be wary of those policing women's autonomy because they don't like what they don't know. Safe travels home on this dreary midnight. Good night.